All right, welcome back uh, to our Q&A time. So for those watching online, I want to tell you all, um, there's a couple of questions here that came in that I, I don't understand. So if, if I don't read your question today, it's because I didn't comprehend your question today. So reflect on that and, and resubmit it in, a, in, in maybe more succinctly. Also, try to keep your questions fairly short. Some of them are, are like four or five different entries because we limit it to so many characters. And uh, try to make it a little more succinct. But if I don't read it, I didn't understand it. In December 17th broadcast, I was surprised about the comment that God uses his power to withhold consequential punishment. I have felt that way about the flood in Noah's time, that the flood was consequential punishment, and God stopped holding back consequences of man's actions when the flood came. Tim Jennings, you, however, have not described the flood in that way as, uh, that, I am a, that I was aware. But instead, I thought you have described the flood as God's way of keeping the way clear for the Messiah to come. Let's see. Uh, for the Messiah to... Let's, let's, would you be able to agree with the flood idea as I described it? So first off, I want to say that I appreciate everybody who wants to put God in the best light. I appreciate that, that attitude. I appreciate the, the desire to, to take God out of the role of the, of the source of pain, suffering, and death, and so forth. However, contextually, these are two different places. We're talking about the final end of sin and sinners and what God actually does. And we're in the time of the flood talking about the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15. After Genesis 3.15, um, no, excuse me, after sin, no human can be saved without Jesus. And Satan begins trying to harden every human heart into total rebellion against God so there will be nobody that will work with God for the salvation of man. And at the time of the flood, there's one righteous man left on the earth and his family. That's it. The whole world was hardened against God at that point. And so God's actions there were not um, seeking to bring punishment, nor were they just passive consequences. God actively intervened, waiting to the last minute to bring a therapeutic intervention, but super, to, to keep open the avenue for Messiah, to save all humans. And I've explained this, and I encourage you to read it in, in our blogs. But superficially, it could look very similar. It could look similar. A doctor who amputates a gangrene limb superficially to somebody who doesn't understand why they're doing it, doesn't understand about gangrene, doesn't understand what that'll lead to in the end, uh, could look similar to a marauder who takes a sword out and hacks off a, a, a person's leg. They're both cutting off a limb. It could look very similar. They're not similar at all. One's attacking for the purpose of selfish gain to hurt and harm. One is seeking to save. And so when you look at the Old Testament actions of God, it could look superficially like he is a source of harm, but it never is. If you really understand the situation that's happening, it's always therapeutic in order to heal and to save. And, and, and that's the first point. The second point is that all the deaths in the Bible are first death sleep experiences. None of them are the wages of sin, eternal death. That only happens at the end of the thousand years. And so you can never equate those two. If you do, you always come up with errors in, in conclusions. And so, no, I can't go along with the idea that the flood was a passive activity on God, just allowing things to happen. I think he purposely intervened, waited as long as he could for the purpose of stopping Satan from destroying the avenue through which Messiah was going to come. Can you give me the correct test for unmasking the beast of Revelation 13 and 17 under page 15 and imposed law says Matthew 6, 43 through 45? Yes, that is a typo. It will be corrected in the, in the future prints. I think it's already corrected on the online. If you get the PDF or the online flip book, it's corrected, but that's Luke 6, 43 through 45. So it should be Luke instead of Matthew. Same chapter, same verses, but Luke. 
Would you please encourage the people to join the directory so we can fellowship if we're close? So this is on our on our website under the member section. You can put your name and your and your at least city and state and whatever in our directory. And then anybody who's done that and and you have a toggle where you can let that be seen or not seen. Um, then other people that that share and, and fellowship online with us can perhaps reach out and connect with you and your community. That's what this person's asking for. So thanks for reminding us to do that. My, I've been reading and enjoying The Wedding of Christ to His Bride. If you all haven't seen our latest, uh, we have them here in the lobby. And if you have a U.S. postal address and want them, just uh, go on online and order them. We'll ship them. I've been... Um, Reading and enjoying the wedding of Christ to his bride, my question is on page 18 under the Passover explanation. You use the Romans 3.25 NIV translation, which seems to say, and it goes, uh, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That's how it, it reads. God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Uh, the Romans 3.25 NIV translation, which seems to say, God did not punish for the sins committed beforehand. And I see the New Living Translation also speaks about God not punishing for the sins of times past. I was just wondering if we don't want to see God as a punishing God, why that translation rather than the New King James or the Remedy, which doesn't speak of God punishing. Thank you. So the God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished in the context of the Passover. God passed over. And so the next question would be, well, how does the punishment come? I, the, the, I don't go into that. I leave that because that's not really the focus here. But if you want to address that question, how does punishment from sin come? Does punishment from sin come from God or does it come from sin? The wages of sin is death. Sin when full grown brings forth death. And God left that un, the sins committed beforehand unpunished because no one has died the wages of sin death. They're all sleeping in the grave. God has passed over, allowing for the plan of salvation to be carried out. So all that are reconciled to God will never reap eternal death. They will have eternal life. So he's, this is what, what this means. It doesn't actually say that God uh, did not use his power to inflict punishment on people. He left it unpunished. And so it's a, it's a passive. But it does, it does require one to actually uh, ask the question, if we just read into it human law, then people might read that and think that God uh, restrained himself from inflicting punishment. But that's not what actually what it says. And then, is the Catholic teaching regarding original sin the same as mankind being born uh, in a terminal condition after Adam sinned? No, not my, not my understanding. My understanding of original sin is original guilt, original legal accountability. You're born under legal condemnation, and God is legally required to use his power to execute you or torture you in hell for alternative unless you get the legal application of the sacraments of the church, your infant baptism, or you partake in the, in the sacraments of the, of the Eucharist uh, to legally account for your sins uh, in the heavenly court system. So it's, it's a guilt legal mechanism that they teach we're born guilty. Um, we, we don't teach that. We, bore, we, we teach we're born innocent, but with a condition that without remedy results in death, a terminal condition. And so those, those and none of us chose it. And this is, a, this is a, a kind of an explosive idea to think about, but just anybody who focuses on the penal legal model, they will always focus on all of your righteousness, filthy racks. Oh, oh, you are because of your sins, and then we'll talk about you. But just step them back and say, to, to whoever's teaching that, say, when did you choose to become a sinner? Adam and Eve chose to become sinners. 
The rest of us who are born in sin conceive in iniquity, Psalm 51. We are not held accountable. This is what Jesus taught. We're not held accountable because we have the sin condition. We're held accountable for as light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness. Okay? In other words, the remedy has been provided at no cost, and we're not held accountable because we have a terminal condition. We're held accountable for refusing the remedy that will cure us of the condition. That's the big difference. Okay? And that is not the uh, same as the uh, original uh, sin that I understand it. Isn't observing the Sabbath as a holy time part of loving God supremely with all our hearts? So in that sense, isn't it important as loving your neighbor as ourself? So I guess it depends on what you understand the Sabbath to mean. The Sabbath was given as a gift. God created the Sabbath for angels. No, he did not. When sin began in heaven, there was no Sabbath. Angels didn't have a Sabbath. Sabbath was created at the end of this earth's creation. And it was created for man. And man was not created for the Sabbath. If you think about the YMCA or Halsey Gym was created for the people. The people were not created for the gym. Think that through. Now, if you use the gym rightly, can you be benefited and blessed by it? If you use the gym wrongly, can you be injured by it? Same with the Sabbath. You use the Sabbath rightly, and I say use it. It was given as a gift for us. Did the people who crucified Christ use the Sabbath? And it hurt them. So the question would be, how do you understand the Sabbath? Why was it given? What's its purpose? What's the relationship to it? If you call the Sabbath a delight, says in Isaiah. So imagine, can a parent use various authority to insist and even pressure their child to eat their spinach or broccoli? Can you make them enjoy it? The Sabbath is to be a delight. Much of my upbringing was various forms of authority and pressure to conform behavior in certain ways during certain hours of the week, and that was considered obedience. Parents and churches and schools can do that to a certain degree, but they can never make somebody enjoy it, can they? And in fact, the more of that you do, I can tell you, the less joy there is. It's true. I had, uh, it was only when I became free that I look forward to the Sabbath each week, the day of, of freedom. And so what is it that you're able to do on Sabbath? Well, what does the actual commandment say? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all they work. But on the seventh day, thou shalt not work. You, nor the manservant, nor maidservant. So, so what the prohibit, prohibition is on work. Does the commandment tell you what constitutes work? Does it? No. It doesn't tell you. You're left completely free. Decide what constitutes work. Kicking a soccer ball around with your kid in the yard on Sabbath afternoon, is that work? Foot pounds per second. Foot pounds per second. <laughs> is going horseback riding work? Only if you have to put on the saddle. If you don't have to put the saddle on, it's not work. 
say a Bible verse before you put the soccer ball. Right. Okay, that's right. You can kick the soccer ball, but every time it goes through the net, you have to recite a Bible verse. Yep. From memory. <laughs> the games we play is, is going out to eat on Sabbath work. Well, not for your spouse. Staying home is more work for your spouse or for you. So this is why it's left. And what happens is when people approach the Sabbath and they have Sabbath questions, in my experience, it's always remnants of Roman law working in their heart. What can I do? What am I supposed to do? Don't I have to obey? What happens if we don't obey? What happens if the TV's not off at sunset? What if we do this? What if we do? Where does the Bible say, remember the, Sabbath, remember the Sabbath day to attend church services? Six days shall you be out doing your business, but on the seventh day you must show up at church. Does the Bible say that anywhere? But isn't that what most people, at least Adventists, think it means? There's nothing wrong with going to church on the Sabbath. Where does the Bible say, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall the labor and do all they work, but Sunday you should never attend church. Thou shalt not attend church on Sunday. Is there a commandment that you, prohibits you from going to church on Sunday? No. Most Adventists would think there is. If you go to church on Sunday, you're getting marked badly. There's nothing in that. It's all, it's, all a, it's, a, it's a misapplication, misunderstanding of, of, of imposed law. The Sabbath is a sign of how God governs. It's, it says a sign, I'm the one who makes you holy. It is like a flag, like the U.S. flag is a sign of our government, but the U.S. flag is not the government. The Sabbath is not the government of God. It's a sign of the government. How did the Sabbath come into being? It was created as a day in which God himself rested, set apart by creative power and resting from creation. Truth presented in love and in a world created to operate on the law of love and left free, intelligence left free. The Sabbath is the embodiment of God's designs and methods. And thus, the Sabbath is a sign that those who appreciate and internalize God's laws live those principles all week long. So all week long, you're remembering the Sabbath to keep it holy because you live truth in love and you leave other people free all week long. You're a Sabbath keeper. Sunday became a day of worship by legislation. And it's a sign or mark of imperial human law or Satan's government doesn't really matter if you go to church on that day. What matters is if you value that method of justice and righteousness, then you will use power and coercion to coerce the consciences of others. So under the COVID thing, certain church organizations coerce the consciences of their employees, threaten to fire them, and would not give them religious exemption if they didn't want to inject something into their spirit temples. They were marked beastly, even if they went to church on Sabbath. Whereas other Christian organizations who go to church on Sunday protected the consciences of their employees and students and would not coerce them. They're Sabbath keepers, even though they go to church on Sunday. And this is the, 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 the bigger truth. And people want to make it so simple about simply a, a 24-hour period each week. It is a 24-hour period each week, but it's what it represents. It's a sign. It's a gift to us. So somebody asked about a blood test that I may have mentioned. Um, I, I don't recall mentioning this about you can take a blood test to tell if your blood vessels are healthy or not. Um, I don't know a test about that. So I might have said something that was misunderstood. I don't know. 
I said, I don't know whether to pray for strength and courage to visit, to visit angry, hurtful, abusive family or stay away from, from Christmas visits. How can I know what is safe? Can I balance honoring parents and caring for the widowed with setting boundaries? Of course you can. And we have responsibility to make decisions, governance of self, that are right, healthy, and reasonable in governance of self, period. And other people's behavior tells you about them, not about you. And so if other people have treated you in ways that are abusive, exploitive, deceitful, and they've proven themselves to be untrustworthy, then if you decide to go around them, you should have a clear understanding that, um, that those people will not be people you can trust. They're going to say something hurtful. You should expect it. There can be reasons you go around people in your family that are like this because it's a large family gathering and there's one person there that's like this and you want to see everybody else and that person's going to be this. You might be around that person, but you shouldn't expect anything other than that. And so metaphor I give is if you had a scorpion in your house that you had to keep alive and you couldn't kill it, like a family member. (laughs) What would you do with a scorpion that you had to keep alive in your house? Wouldn't you put it in a terrarium? And a terrarium has impenetrable walls. Those are boundaries. Okay? Now, if you decided to reach out and put your hand in the terrarium and try to pet the scorpion and you got stung knowing it's a scorpion, whose fault is that? Yours or the scorpions? Yours. Okay, when you know these people that you've just described are this way, if you're getting stung, it's your fault. She says, what if the scorpion promises not to sting you? Okay. You, you know the story of the scorpion and the frog? I do, yeah. Yeah. The scorpion said to the frog, give me a ride across the lake. Uh, well, no, if I, if I let you on my back, you'll sting me. If, well, if I do that, we'll both drown. We'll both die. I wouldn't sting you. Okay, hop on. Half across the lake, the scorpion stings the frog. As the poison's working its way through, he says, why'd you do that? Now we're both going to drown. The scorpion said, it's my nature. Scorpions sting. Snakes bite. There are certain people, when you want to know their nature, you know not to trust them. But here's the problem, and it's another metaphor, and I see this in some of my patients that get stung over and over and over again. They so desperately want the scorpion to be a cuddly bunny or a kitten. They want it. That what happens is, and I use this metaphor, imagine sitting on this front chair right here, we have a scorpion. But what you see when you look over there, you see the cutest little kitten or bunny. That's what you see. If you saw a cute little kitten or bunny, what might you do? Might you go over to pick it up and pet it? But since it's actually a scorpion, when you do, what happens? You get stung. And it hurts, and you cry out, and you pull back, and you go in your corner, and you cry. And an hour or two, a week later, the pain swelling's gone, you look over and see a cute little kitten. (laughs) And what do you do? You go back and you get stung it. And this happens in relationships all the time because people refuse to accept that these people have revealed themselves to be scorpions because they so desperately want mommy, brother, sister, daddy, child, whoever it is to you, you so desperately want them to be a cuddly kitty that you insist on seeing them that way even when they've proven they're not. The truth will set you free. See the truth identify the truth, and then you make informed decisions on what you understand is healthy. You don't have to hate them. You don't hate the scorpion that stings you when you put your hand in the terrarium. It's like that. That's what scorpions do. This is what they do. They're completely untrustworthy. Don't trust them. And don't expose yourself to them. Don't put yourself in a position where you have to rely on them, ever. Once they've proven that, then life becomes much simpler. 
Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and we thank you for the way that you have given each one of us our own individuality and capacity for thinking, choosing, and self-determination. We ask that you will give us wisdom and discernment and the strength to make those healthy choices and stand with them uh, and, and trust you with how things turn out. We pray in your holy name. Amen.